don't know about you, I'm enjoying swimming in the Psalms. It has been really uh, good for my soul as we uh, just continue to, to turn our eyes on Jesus. The Psalms dig into our experience and they help us lift our eyes to him, which I think is the reason why, why the Lord uh, directed me to this psalm for us this morning because we, it caught my interest originally because uh, you'll see that there's a, a phrase, the city of our God. Last week when we considered Augustine and his impact on the church, uh, in 410, Rome was overrun and sacked by the Visigoths. Uh, and Rome was always looked at as the eternal city. So if, if Rome fell, then the entire world felt panicked. Because if Rome could fall, nothing was safe. Augustine, in, in order to help the church think through that, like this mighty fortress of a city is gone, and it took several years, it took like around 20 for it to really be gone. But he's, it rocked everybody's world, and he, he wrote a book called The City of God in order to help Christians, the people that he was serving, uh, but also the, the global church to be able to understand that this place, our physical address on this earth is not our address forever. It's only the foretaste that we, we have a physical address here, but we will have an etern- we do have an eternal address if we are in Christ. So we have an eternal place, an eternal address in the eternal city, Mount Zion, which is the city of God. Let's read the Lord's word, follow along, Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came, on to get, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Lord, do your work today in our hearts to free us from the tug and pull of the temporal to set our hearts on the eternal, which is our joy. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as the church, uh, living lives surrounded by fallenness and temporary hopes in the world, 
uh, we need the reminder that there is an eternal home awaiting us. We, we a lot of times get uh, comfortable and casual with our present lives that distracts us from the eternal life that we live now and also await. I, it's a typical happening. When it's time for us to eat in our home, Kathy will announce, dinner's ready, everything stops, we line up, we get our food and go sit at the table. And when we sit at the table, I, a lot of times, uh, have to wait because somebody else is coming from another part of the house or people are, are in line and we have to sit down. I will usually, which I'm trying to be kind and wait for my family to sit down, I'll start eating a little bit, just a little taste of this because it smells so good that I have to taste a little bit. Right? That's what God wants for us as his church. He wants us to taste a little bit of heaven so we can have the joy of what's coming and the anticipation of, oh, I have a little taste now, but I get to dive into this. That's what, that's what God's plan for us is. And he, God, and the, the title, strange title for today, but God gathers his church. He shatters his church in order to scatter his church. That's his plan for us. And every time we come to him as a gathered assembly in, in the place where we get to call church with the people that we love the most on this earth and we're saying we get to do life together, we get to be involved in one another's lives, mutually encourage one another being there when things are hard. We are gathered here and God first does a work of shattering something in us. He shatters false hopes, false ideas, things that don't line up with his mind that he's revealed in his word. But this is what he does. He says to us, then go, scatters us into a world that's lost and broken and in turmoil. This, we're always going to have turmoil in the world. Sometimes it feels more intense than others, but we always have this turmoil. But God has us in that turmoil on purpose so we can shine for his glory because he wants to deposit something in us. Lifting our eyes to the city of God affects change in us so that we bring the glory of heaven out to the world and we bring it as lights in the darkness. So the big caption for today, God's plan is to gather his people and shatter false hopes in order to send them out in his glory. And what we have to recognize about this psalm is that there's joy and gladness in that going. And we don't get that joy and gladness, uh, gladness until we come face to face with God in his presence, in his holy mountain. So where the something of us is sacrificed, something of us is diminished, something of us falls off so we can take up Christ and serve him. This is our anticipation. So at the outset, I want us to understand God has gathered us, and we're going to talk about what that is, but he's also, God's intention is to shatter something in us this morning. Because God, he breaks things down in us in order to build us back up. And too often we rely on our own self-sufficiencies, our own self-reliances, our own thoughts about how life is supposed to go, and why God doesn't just give us what we think is best. Because God's saying, I know it's best for you, and there's a joy, there's a unique joy I want you to have, but i got to break something down in you to build you up 
in my love. And that's the role of the church. That's the role of coming to church. That's why it's still very, very important to come to church. Now, what is this gathered in the first three verses? We have God showing there's a strategic plan. He has a city. He's greatly to be praised. Holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, joy of the earth. God has always had a plan to gather his people for his glory. He called Abraham. Why? To have a people. He promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a people. He called his people then out of Egypt to gather them for worship at Mount Sinai. That worship was to mark them with his glory as they lived all of their days. They were to see his glory and live under the banner of his joy so others would see and be able to taste of that same glory. Now we know sin is in the mix there. They can't stay as they want. Their hearts wander. There's idols that they pursue and go after. It's the same with us today. But look at how he describes his mountain. This is God's mountain. It is one holy. It is completely other than anything we can conceptualize as what we think God could be like. He says, my mountain is holy. It's untouched. Remember, he told the people of Israel, don't come too close to the mountain. You'll die if you come too close. Because there's a holiness about who God is and a sinfulness that infects us, that creates that separation, that God in his love is saying, my presence is going to come to you to be with you. Now, there's a, there's a, a way that's supposed to happen, and it did, with the sacrifices in the temple, that God could be holy and pure and righteous in the midst of a sinful, wicked, and evil people whose hearts are bent on wrongdoing just because it's fun to do wrong. His mountain is holy. And his mountain is beautiful by comparison, elevation. It rises above others in its beauty, and it is the joy of all the earth. God's mountain is the joy of all the earth. When the earth is looking for joy after joy and whatever pleasure, which ends up, ends up just becoming a passing pleasure because nothing in this world lasts, God says, my mountain is joy. That's what you're looking for. Come to my mountain because it is the joy of all the earth. And that's what should mark God's people. We should be marked with that joy. So that's what people see in us. Now when he says to Mount Zion and what he's describing in this mountain of beautiful and elevation and joy of the earth. The Psalms referencing the temple that's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is set up high on a mountain, elevation of 2,500 feet around that. It's high off the ground. But it's the place of God's temple, his manifest presence on the earth. So God is saying, the place of eternal joy is in my presence. The place of that holy and beautiful presence, that's the place to find that joy. But his presence, his manifest presence on the earth can only be accessed because of his holiness through a sacrifice. So God sets up the sacrificial system first with the tabernacle and then eventually with the temple. And he says, you've got to come to me based on a sacrifice because if you approach to me sinfully, you're going to die because my, my righteousness will take you out. 
because that's how pure and fire righteous God's, God's nature is. When Moses looked at him, he says, I've looked at God and lived. How did that happen? Because it was understood you can't look at God and see him in his presence full on and live. God says, I'm going to be in your presence. I'm, my presence is going to be with you. But there's got to be a sacrifice that you bring to me. Somebody, something else has to take the judgment of the impurity of your sin in order for you to be in my presence and my presence be with you. So this place on the earth in Jerusalem at the temple is the place of God's throne on the earth. The mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled, that mercy seat's also called footstool. That's the literal name for it. It's a footstool. What does that mean? It's the place that God's feet rest on the earth as he sits on his eternal throne. That's when, that, that's the place that he is. It's the place of Remember, and, and you know, all the pictures that we see, the Ark of the Covenant, it's nice, pure, shiny gold. Remember the, the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest would go in and take the blood of the offering and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So in that gold, you have blood that's on the top, on the cover. It's kind of a, a weird thing because you think, oh, God, it's just all pretty and everything. No, God says... There's a cost to come into my presence and it's the price of blood and it points to the eternal sacrifice that Jesus would be to end all sacrifices and to give us his presence in us forever. Forever. So God's throne is in a place, God's throne now is in the hearts of every one of his people. It's the place of his holy and eternal presence on the earth, access to his mountain is offered by God alone. He's the one that gets people to his mountain. We don't find it, we don't grope for it. We're not accepted into his presence by our own merit, our own moral performance. We are unworthy to enter his presence. And God grants access based on that sacrifice for sins. Today we access God's presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. And our experience of God's presence every single day is still by faith. We recognize God, God's place now is not one place. God has scattered his presence into his people to carry that light outward. Before, uh, when God's temple was there, the presence was there, all, all of the people of the earth got to come to that presence. At the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was given to God's people, God's presence went out from there and now goes the opposite direction to infect, affect the entire earth and infect it. We want to do that. It's a good medical term, all the COVID stuff. Now look what he does in verse 3. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. God gathers his people to communicate his glory. He wants us, he is a revealing God. He's self-revealing. God wants us to know who he is and so often we feel like God's running and hiding from us and we have to figure out where he is because we've done something wrong and we have to chase him down to get forgiveness or chase him down to get blessing. That's not his posture. God gathers his people together to come to church. He gathers his people as the church and he comes to church because it's his intention. It's been his strategic plan. He wants to reveal his glory. 
is holy and loving character that then relates to a gathered people, a huge component of God up against any, any belief system that has ever existed in the world is that you know most belief systems have a God that's far off and man has to do something to get to God. God is the opposite. He, God is not, the Bible says he's not far off, he's near. Yes, he's transcended, he's above everything, but he's also near coming to his people, those that call out for mercy, those that call out for repentance because he is a relational God. He wants a relationship with his people. What was once feared because of holiness and sin separation has now become a fortress for the people of God, a fortress of security and faithfulness and truth. This is why we still gather as the church of God today. It's still important to gather as the church. Glory is manifested when we gather. Glory is experienced as we sing and praise. Glory is experienced as we preach and hear the preached word and faith rises in our hearts. That's a glorious moment. So right now as that sinks in your heart, that's a glorious moment. God of all creation is coming to us saying, I'm here, I'm here with you. And here's my glory. Here's the taste. You know, I think so often we are more like, remember Ezekiel 37 with the valley of dry bones? There's dry bones, and then uh, when the wind comes, everything is, is assembled. They start bones all rattling. They, they assemble together, and they're given flesh but something's missing. They don't have breath in them. They're not alive. And I think too often what we resemble more as the people of God is people who have been saved. We have been redeemed. We've gone from deadness of dry bones now to having the figure of a person with all the flesh and sinews and muscles that are required, but we don't have a breath. When we sing, when we praise, and when there's a preaching of God's word, We've got to anticipate and understand that God's breath is coming out to come into us, to animate us, to give us reassurance of the life that we have through Christ. And we want to anticipate that coming. We want to anticipate glory. We want to anticipate glory as we sit down to read the word or pray. We want to anticipate glory as we fellowship with one another. We want to anticipate glory as we come to church to be the church. Here's the spiritual reality. Church is for the revelation of glory. That's why we have church. Now here's the spiritual principle of when we come to church, before we can be built up, we need to be made low. And that's where the shattering comes in. Verses 4 through 11. There's kings that come. And God, God protects and preserves his presence by dismantling false assurances. Now, it's a glorious moment when God comes to us and says, you got some bad thinking going on. You know, repentance happens in our minds as well as in our, our lives. A repentance is a turning from an activity, an action that is sinful toward God. And we say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm turning, clinging to you. You're my glory. You're my prize. But repentance also happens in our minds when we go like this. Huh. I've been selfish. I need to stop being selfish. 
Repentance happens everywhere. So God protects and preserves by, by dismantling false assurances. He reveals to us you're, you're trusting the wrong thing. You're depending upon the wrong thing. So there's an outward onslaught that comes that God is protecting. And that's what's described in the psalm. The kings are assembling. They came together. But look, they see God's glory in the church and they're astounded and they panic and they run. Now, kings assembling together to attack are very common in Scripture, and God thwarts their attempts to dethrone him. Now, in, in our cancer, cancer, cancel culture, God's not going to be canceled. He's still going to be there now. He, he, for some, he's there as a rod of, of lightning judgment. For others, he's there as a compassionate Savior who shows up. I mean, God, God just comes to us and he saves us and he reveals himself to us exactly how we need it communicated to us. So some of you, you prayed to receive Christ because you were terrified. I'm terrified of God. I need to be saved. Others of you, you were welcomed in by a compassionate Savior that came in. Now, when in a relationship with him, we begin to see both. We begin to have God as God because that's who he is. When in Joshua chapter 10, verse 5, we're told that then the five kings of the Amorites, the, kings, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. I think this is a picture of the attack upon the church, but here's what happens. Remember, there were several kings uh, in the Old Testament, several kings of Israel and Judah that made these alliances with other kings, the king of Egypt or kings around, just to try to, to try to have some type of support that they could see in case somebody else attacked. And I think as the church, the, the, the kingly attack that we experience is going after these kings because check this out. There's meanings in their names. Jerusalem means peace. It's a fountain of peace. So we are tempted to look for a, an inferior peace rather than the superior peace that Christ gives us. Hebron means association. We will depend more upon our relationships and associations and business kind of uh, relational dealings rather than in trusting God to provide. Yarmouth is seeing. I think that's a, a, we can connect that to knowledge. We can trust more in our knowledge of things rather than in a God who is eternal. Lackish, it, it's the word for existence. Self-reliance. Eglon is, the, it's, uh, it means chariot. Eglon is the temptation to trust in strength. Our own strength or the strength around us rather than depend fully upon God's strength. And here's what we often lean on these kings that promise much but never, ever deliver. God delivers us from the onslaught of all the alluring temptations to trust in false kings. That's how he shatters us. He shatters our false assumptions and our false assurances. That's the word I had but he also shatters us inwardly. There is an inward undermining, I think, that is revealed in verse 7. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. This psalm, if you look at the top, 
at the beginning is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Remember who Korah was? Korah stood up uh, in the Exodus and he said, Moses, are you really the only one that can hear from God? I think all of us can hear from God. And, and he, he didn't do that. He did it in pride. Who are you, Moses, to do? You have exalted yourself, Moses. Moses freaks. He gets down on the earth and he says, I don't know why you're doing this, but you, this is not right. Goes before the Lord. God, he says, we'll go before God. God will choose. God chooses Moses and Aaron. And the earth opens up and swallows Korah. Close back up. These are his descendants. And they've written, they wrote several psalms that I think they're, they're the ones that stick out for me as favorites. The sons of Korah knew something about standing up in pride to, to challenge God or the, or the ways of God or the timing of God. They knew that. And they said, you know what? God will dismantle our pride in order to build us up in his fortress. God will squash our petty false assurances that our pride trusts in. And you know how he does it? With the east wind. The east wind is undefeated in the Old Testament. The east wind is what pushed uh, the Red Sea apart so God's people could walk across on dry land. The east wind is told that he shattered the ships of Tarshish. Now, that Tarshish comes up. Remember, that's where Jonah tried to flee. It was, it was believed to be in modern-day Spain, that far away on the other side of the ocean for them, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah tried to get as far away from God as he could, so he, he wanted to go to Tarshish, found a ship that was going there. Uh, it was also, uh, before that, King Solomon got a lot of his riches from ships that were in Tarshish. But when Jehoshaphat tried it, all of his ships sank. See, what we will do is we look at God's dealings with other people, and we have this weird, I don't know if it's entitlement or just expectation that we think, well, God, since you did it for that person, you're going to do it for me. But God differs in the way that he leads and guides us. And when we put all of our hope in that, we might find that what we think is going to come on top of the sea ends up at the bottom of the sea. Because God will say, you're trusting in the wrong thing. But the bottom line is this. God will squash our pride. Now we can come to him with our pride saying, God, squash it. That's a much better thing. Rather than God have to break us because we are so proud that we won't hear or listen to anything that he's telling us and saying, repent, come to me. Stop being arrogant. Stop being proud for all of us because God needs to he needs to dismantle our false assurances he needs to squash our pride and that puts us in a then it puts us in a position to be built up in his love because we recognize the mercy that is revealed in his love so he builds us up in his love when we focus on God's love and that's verses 9 through 11 verse 9 we have thought on your steadfast love O God in the midst of your temple. When we come to church, God, we think about your love. And we, we are like Isaiah. When he saw God's glory in Isaiah 6 recorded there, he sees the glory he has laid low. What does he say? Woe is me. 
And then God reveals his plan, and then God says, Who's, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. He couldn't send Isaiah until he first laid him low. That's what God does for us. He, he removes the pride. He removes the false trusts in order for us to be in a position to respond to him and him alone. It, it's, an, it's a genuine response. Now, the church, when it's gathered, is to preach and praise about God's love God's righteousness and God's judgment, the steadfast love of the Lord that doesn't ebb and flow according to our behavior, a love that stays and penetrates the deepest and darkest places until we fully surrender to him and taste and see his gladness, taste and understand his gladness and joy. We preach and praise about God's righteousness. God's, it says God's right hand. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. The right hand communicates the activity of God to accomplish his will on the earth. So we are preaching about and praising a sovereign God, a providential God who works good. No matter how much we understand it, he works good for those who love him in the appropriation of his desire. So we're not jealous of others when God seems to bless them more than us. No, we're praising him. He is a good God. And we, we preach and praise about God's judgment. There is a preaching of the one who judges to say there is a judgment coming. Turn and repent. If you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord, the call is to turn and repent of your sins and trust Christ for salvation. But for those who have done that, it's a reminder. God has already judged, and his judgment was horrific. Taken out, uh, taken out on the life of his son on the cross. And we, we also, we preach and praise about a God who accomplishes his glory at every turn. He accomplishes his glory at every turn. God doesn't obey a cancel culture. If he did, we'd be the ones to be canceled. God would make us toast in a second because we can't stand before him. When we preach and praise of God's steadfast love, the results will be gladness. Now, sometimes that gladness sneaks up on us. I love it when that happens that way. When we're just not expecting what we're feeling. I just, I remember uh, the gladness of that last song and, and God taking me back to when I was a boy singing that song and, and the faithfulness that God has proven over the years. That's a gladness that snuck up on me. Wasn't quite ready for it. But that song of steadfast love is the same song that's been in the temple since it was built. Second Chronicles 5, verse 13. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. This is the context, the uh, dedication of the temple. Where Solomon has sacrificed so many animals, they quit counting them. Like, ah. Uh, to an account. I have no idea how many you did, Solomon. Uh, just, he said, keep on bringing them. Keep on bringing them. He says, and this is, he's giving this instruction. When the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. Listen, this is their song. For he is good. And his steadfast love endures 
forever. It's the same song. It's the same exact song. But listen, what happened? Look, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. It was filled with his glory. Now, we are that temple that exists under the cloud, the glory cloud of God's love. When we gather in his presence, our pride is shattered. We are built up in his love in order to pass it on. That's where the scattered comes from, verses 12 through 14. The first thing is walk Walk around Zion, go around her. And what is this scattering? This, is a, this walking around is a remembering of all that God has done, so you take it outwards. You take it to other people. And he says, number towers, consider ramparts, go to the citadels. What's he telling them? Go look for the physical evidences of God's faithfulness in your life. Church, that, that is a a necessary part of our walks with the Lord. We have to be able to walk around and look because even though our feelings may want to deny it, we look at the evidences of his grace. We look at the evidences of his faithfulness all along our lives. And we say, God was there and he rescued me there and he delivered me there. We number them. And we'll find that God has proven himself in ways that We've forgotten about because that's our uh, really our walk about is to be reminded and we don't want to we don't want to walk past God or have God walk past us we want to number them we want to see these concrete examples of God's faithfulness and Isaiah 64 I think Isaiah uh, asking God to show up in the midst of when, when life was barren. He is, he's lived through the judgments of Jerusalem, and now he's got all of, he's looking at exile, and he's saying, God, what's going to happen? And here Isaiah, here his heart, in, this is his numbering towers, this, it's in there, he's considering the ramparts, he knows who God is, and he won't let God walk by. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. This is what we're asking God to do all the time because we feel the barrenness and the fruitlessness in our lives. We feel it. And that's part of the struggle. He wants to gather us. And part of the struggle of the fruitfulness, our fruitlessness, is trying to figure out, am I trusting in the wrong thing? Am I trusting in myself too much? God, break me down so I can see you and trust you. But this is our cry every time we come together. This should be our cry. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, God, and come down. And life would be different. It wouldn't be me just standing as a man, but it would be life and breath of the Spirit that flows through me and affects those that are around me. Because I'm numbering your, 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 the walls. I'm walking around. I'm numbering the citadels. I'm numbering the ramparts. You have proven your faithfulness, God. And I will tell of it. I will tell of it to others. I was stirred in my heart last night just reading Ray Ortland's book, When God Comes to Church. And he said this about George Whitfield reflecting on his sermon. He said, George Whitfield said, God the Lord came down among us 
Something special happened to the ministry of the word. God shook the mountains of resistance. He burned the brushwood of prejudice and false ideas. He warmed the indifference of cold and unbelieving hearts. He made his name known. Oh, that's our prayer, isn't it? We want to feel God that way. And we want to testify to the miracle of his power, the miracle of his presence still with us in our lives. Listen, we've got to say these things. And and so often, I don't know if we feel like it's proud to, to tell of what God has done, but I think we've just forgotten to look for him. We have forgotten to look for how he's showing up in the small ways and in the large ways. We think if he, doesn't, if he doesn't show up in this really grand, huge way, then, you know, it's just, yeah, just God taking care of me. No, we, we, we need to rum, rumble. Number, man, make fun of the guy with mouth surgery. I, I just can't, my the lips aren't working today. What was I talking about? My mind's not working now. We number them. The little things. We number those little things as well. We number all of them. We number all of them. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy when he shows up in those little ways, and he's worthy when he shows up in the big ways, and we testify to it. And you know what we do? We tell, this is God. This is God. He showed up here, and he showed up there. This is God, and that takes place by showing up in the next generation have a burden. I want to pass on the fire of God to my children. I don't just want to pass on a knowledge of God. I want to pass on the fire of God so they understand his consuming nature. And for all of our children to see a fire in us, It's so compelling that they say, I have to love Jesus because that's where joy is. That's where happiness is. And I don't have to run around looking for it in trinkets and pleasures that don't satisfy. Because that's when we reach the nations, too. We bring Zion's hope to those who need salvation. Now, look, the de- looking up like this to the city. Mount Zion, it doesn't, it, it's not so we can be distracted from the things that are going on in the world. No, we still need to be engaging in conversation of what's happening around us in the world so we can think biblically, think like God, but also respond like God in the situation. So we're not, we're not doing this like I'm just, I, I don't see protesting, I'm just going to look at Jesus. You know, I'm looking at the city of God, just come on, just bring it. No, we look at him so we can engage the culture that we're in. So this is, not, this is not some weird uh, distraction or, or, or shirking of responsibility. This is putting our eyes where it belongs so we can turn with that grace that we have received and we can tell people there's coming judgment. Repent. Repent of your sins. Choose Christ. We can bring healing in the form of hope, the healing to those who are suffering. We can do what God has called us to do as lights of future grace because he will guide us forever. You know, there's a, not to get too far down this trail, uh, it's a slippery slope. Now, remember, put in the context of last week that we need to listen to the black community, but there's a slippery slope 
when all of a sudden we start changing names of things because somebody did or said something wrong, you'd realize no name should be on anything then. Because, but listen to what the world's doing. The world's looking for Jesus. They want to change a name because, no, you said this in the past, so we're canceling you. So what is, the, what is the world wanting? They're looking for Jesus. That's who they're looking for. We are to be Jesus to the world because his glory came and dwelt in him, and he is in us. Father, we ask that you would please Come down. Come down and affect our lives with a passion and a fire that cannot be quenched. And that would show up in our joy. It would show up in our love for one another. Most importantly, our love for you. God, give us that passion that says, when I look to you, everything just falls to pieces. Because you're the only thing that lasts. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Turn our eyes that we may deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Animated by the life and glory and power of the resurrected Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That every day would be different. From our outlook when we wake up in the morning conversations throughout the day when we lay our head on the pillow at night we would know I invested today in the kingdom I invested because I visited that mountain and that mountain was with me and that presence has gone through me to others